Okay, I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. We'll begin there, but we're going to be primarily looking at chapter 3 tonight, but part of chapter 2. The last few verses, 21, kind of catch you up to, with what's going on, verses 21 and following. In Esther chapter 2. It says, In those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, he had gotten this promotion, maybe because of uh, Esther, victim, and perished. Two of, kings, uh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door became angry. We don't know why. We'll talk about that later on. And sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai. And he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name, now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows. And it was written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, not Mordecai, Haman, the son of Hamathada, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll stop there. Father, I just want to thank you for your love and your grace and your op uh, opportunity that you've allowed us to experience as far as worshiping you. May we just be faithful in that and honor you and glorify you throughout this service. That is our purpose. That is our goal. So God, help us to lift you up throughout this service. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've been looking at this, uh, at Esther, we, uh, last week I vacillated and it was due to a misprint in my notes and so I started out with four years uh, between chapter one, you remember, and, and uh, Vasti uh, being removed and uh, Queen Vasti and then uh, uh, Queen uh, Esther being uh, brought into the uh, situation and then I went to four months, I looked down, and, and then I went, jumped back and forth. Uh, the reason was that there was a misprint there. Should have stayed with four years, that there had been four years between all, between all that time. So we see this uh, between the queen, uh, Vasti, being removed, and uh, the young Esther being selected as a new queen. Now, there's something that's very important that I want to us to look at tonight though that's going on uh, th there's intensity that begins to build uh, within the kingdom and uh, as you know the Persians had been uh, in the past had been pretty uh, congenial towards the Jews they let them go back home and and uh, they had a pretty good relationship with them matter of fact they had a pretty good relationship with all uh, the countries that they had conquered because they allowed them to uh, to kind of do their own thing as long as it was within uh, the realm of what uh, they saw was uh, legit and they didn't try to uh, have an uprising to overcome them. And so there had been a pretty good relationship here with the Jews. But now we see a relationship that is heating up. And there's background there that we uh, want to look at during this uh, message here. And I want to, uh, it's not original with me, but I want to entitle this message Family Feud. 
You've probably heard that. Uh, you watch the program on TV. Well, I think in July 12, 1972, Mark uh, Goodson um, uh, created this, and it was on ABC. Consisted of two families competing to name the most popular response to survey questions in order to win money. That's not what I'm getting into right now, though. To lead into the family feud that I'm talking about, I want to just share with you about a family feud that went on, uh, that was uh, divided by the uh, Tugs Ford River, Fork River. Uh, two families, you probably know about them, uh, the McCoys and the uh, Hatfields. Uh, you remember those? Yeah? And so uh, they were divided, you know, it's, the river's uh, Tug. Fork River separated these two families uh, geographically. It was the border of Kentucky and West Virginia, and the McCoys uh, lived on the Kentucky side, and the Hatfields lived on the West Virginia side. Now, the Hatfields were a little bit more affluent, and especially more politically involved uh, than the McCoys. Both families served in the uh, war between the states and they served in the Confederate Army except for one of the family members and that was Asa Harmon McCoy and he uh, turned coat and served uh, uh, for the blue coats and so as he was returning home he was murdered by a group of Confederate um, guards called the Logan Wildcats and at first they thought Ansi Hatfield was a uh, the one who did it or lead it out, uh, led out in doing it. It was later believed, though, that uh, Jim Vance, a uh, uncle, committed uh, this murder or led out in this murder because Asa was homesick. So um, here we are, a feud erupting. I mean, really erupting. And uh, 13 years later, their dislike for one another had continued. And matter of fact, in 1878, the McCoys accused the Hatfields of uh, stealing uh, uh, some of their pork chops or maybe their barbecue ribs or whatever it is. They stole a hog. And, uh, you know, they took them to court over this, but they didn't have the evidence that they needed. They had eaten it up, I guess. And so uh, they couldn't convict them. Well, it got so bad that one of the jurors who had sided with the Hatfields, the McCoys got so mad at him that he was shot and killed after this. And then things began to escalate even more so. In 1982, four years after the shooting, one of the McCoys uh, ran uh, for public office, and he was verbally attacked and discredited by the Hatfields, and he lost the election. So what happened? Three McCoys were killed along with Mr. Hatfield's son. I mean, they were getting angry with one another, you know. And um, as the song went on, we've only just begun. It only just began with them. It continued. Matter of fact, the climax of it really was the feud uh, that they had uh, reached its climax in 1888. It was called New Year's Night Massacre. And several of the Hatfield gang surrounded the McCoy home and opened fire on this family who was sleeping. 
and they even set the house on fire hoping that the head of the family, Randolph McCoy, would come out in the open where they could shoot him. Well, he escaped, but his family wasn't so lucky. Hatfields and McCoy were often headline news throughout the country, and uh, there were points when the governors of both states called up the militia to help stop the fighting. When it was all said and done, uh, this 11-year-old feud lasted from 1880 to 1889. It consumed basically the two families and the lives of dozens of people. And just think, over some good old barbecue ribs. Well, not really, but it was there. I'm going to share with you about a family feud that's developing here that's been developing in the past. This is so very important. In Esther chapter 3, we're about to witness a family feud that could prove far more devastating than Hatfields and McCoy's feud. Instead of taking dozens of lives, this was to take thousands upon thousands of lives. The feud that I'm talking about is between Mordecai's family and Haman's family. It's no accident that both family trees are explicitly given in the book. Haman's ancestry reveals why this decision to massacre the Jewish people wasn't just a political decision, but a personal one. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter 17, that's where the bad blood we know of begins. What happened in Exodus chapter 17? Well, you remember when God uh, allowed the Israelites as a nation, the covenant nation, to be removed from Egypt. And they were out in the wilderness. And who was the first tribe or the first nation or group of people to attack them and attack them from behind it was the Amalekites wasn't it and guess what about the Amalekites the Amalekites they were defeated in the feud but if you move forward you see this feud didn't end because in the book of first Samuel King Saul is ordered to bring judgment on the judgment of God against the Amalekites and their king Agag. Instead of obeying God, what does he do? He spares the king and the best of the cattle. The prophet Samuel indicted Saul for his disobedience and then executed Agag himself in 1 Samuel 15. So the descendants of Agag continued to spread along with their hatred for God and their Jews. And guess who is a part of that family? Haman. The feud between the two nations continued to erupt and the threat of the Jews had never been so great as it was now. It says in Esther 3.10, Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, 
the enemy of the Jews. And that last phrase there, the enemy of the Jews, is so very important. Notice how Haman is described, the enemy of the Jews. Why? Because he is the descendant of Agag. And it seems he will attempt to kill not just one Jew, Mordecai, but all the Jews. Now one principle that I want to go ahead and share that needs to be addressed before we move for, uh, further along here is with King Saul and King Agag. He was ordered to wipe them out, and it was for a reason, for God's judgment. When we offer God only partial obedience, and we do so often, don't we? We allow the fruit of our unaddressed sin to linger in our lives. When you and I uh, fail to fully deal with something that God has told us to deal with and get rid of, there are repercussions with it. We may not think so, but there's repercussions with it. When God tells us to deal with anger, as we'll look at this in here, anger can lead to murder, can it? And it definitely leads to hatred many times. Not only that, but what about when he tells us to quit lying, to be honest? If we're deceptive, then what happens? We begin to cheat other people we begin to lead a lie as far as our lifestyle and what how we are living and so uh, it's the repercussions come uh, along the way eventually come out people begin to see this all the addictions that we might face the same thing if we don't completely get rid of them adultery you we can just go on and on and on it is so important when Mordecai and the Jews, they were having to deal with the repercussions here, that really happened from what? Saul, didn't it? God told them to completely wipe them out. And it was for a reason. It was judgment from him. And another important thing, a truth that needs to be recognized is, you see these grudges that they have here. You see the anger that they uh, they're ex uh, you know expressing a lot of times you know you you see a family feud and you say well those people were just born into it middle east they were just born into it they were born with it no you develop that don't you you're taught that we're taught to be prejudiced we're taught to be angry you know we're not born hating we develop that. Now, we have a fallen nature, sure. But that fallen nature, those characteristics are developed. And so this is what happened here. It had been being uh, nourished and, and developed over a period of time. This feud is really, another thing about this feud is it's really not about lost battles. A lot of times they say, well, it's because of the fighting. It's because of the nations. It's because of what's been going on. This feud, it, it, it reveals how the world hates God and his people. And Haman, uh, his hatred is inspired by 
the Jews' real enemy. And we need to understand that. Who is that real enemy? Satan. And so Satan has for centuries been trying to destroy what? God's covenant nation. And so uh, in order to ensure that, God won't let these, uh, you know, this be fulfilled here. This is an ongoing feud between the nation of light and the nation of darkness. And Haman, like Agag, before him is just a pawn in the hand of a desperate devil who will spend all of history trying to destroy God's beloved people. King Agag wasn't the first to attack the Jews, was he? And Haman won't be the last. So we see this feud going on. And it's going to continue. Because there is the enemy out there. And the enemy not only is against God's people, the nation Israel, but also against the church during this day and time, is it? And so there is going to be a feud that continues between us and darkness, between us and the world. Now then, second of all, we need to look at not only the feuding, but we need to look at the promotion here and the devotion of Mordecai. In those days, it says, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, uh, Bictham and uh, two of king's officials from whom uh, who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows. And it was written in the book of Chronicles, in the king's presence. We notice that Mordecai was promoted, promoted as I mentioned it could have been because uh, in in part uh, due to Esther and the influence that she now had and you know we left Queen Esther and uh, last week and this beautiful young girl she was placed in the harem with all the other uh, beautiful virgins and young women and I want to say that these Persian women were the select group I mean they were the prettiest and so you say, how in the world did she get picked? Well, number one, God. He's, he's at work behind the scenes. But number two, she was placed there because she was beautiful. And not only that, but she, was, she had a grace-filled charm about her. And it affected not only the king, but it affected others in the, uh, uh, the king's uh, uh, dignitaries and other officials, Haggai, Haggai. He, you know, uh, they were captivated by her charm, her grace-filled charm, and they bent over uh, backwards to assist her. And this grace-filled charm seemed to touch all of the king's court, just about, except Haman, and maybe him even for a little while until he found out who she was. But. Uh, it touched all of them and especially touched the king. And so along with Esther becoming queen, now Mordecai gets a, prom a promotion to the king's gate. And everything seems to be going good, doesn't it? Uh, here we see Esther is queen, Mordecai promotion. So 
Let's end the story happily ever after. But that's not the way it goes so often, is it? Pain is part of our fallen world. And I mean, let's just realize, let's just admit that we live in a fallen world and we're not going to escape it. I wish that we could protect our kids, and we try to today from any kind of pain. We try to encourage them, and, and we try to go out of our way to get people fired if they uh, go against our child or if they don't let our child uh, be a part of a, a certain group or uh, whether it's cheerleading or, or sports or whatever it might be. And we try to protect them. And we grandparents so often do the same thing. But you know, you just cannot. We live in a fallen world and instead of doing that, we need to be teaching our children and our grandchildren how to deal with pain. That is part of life. We can't run from it. Pain, as I said, is a part of this fallen world and we need to learn to endure through it, really. Triumph over it. And that only comes by learning to walk with the Lord by faith and learn lessons from it. And that is so important. And we're not teaching and wanting to teach our people so often that. We want, to, we want everything to be so smooth. We want to be in control of things, in other words. We're controllers. I was talking to John earlier about the virus. It just shows that we're not in control of this world. We're not in control. I don't care. You know, the doctors can tell you the same thing. We're not in control of it. They may not admit it, but they're looking for cures and everything else. They don't know. They don't have all the answers. So... Life will be a series of miseries, and this is what we need to be very careful, and this is why we need to teach our children how to endure, because if not, later on, life will be filled with miseries. And you see, misery is optional. Pain is not. So, as Ben Franklin used to say, those things that hurt instruct. And they should instruct. Now, with the promotion, as I said, came pain. And we see why this pain occurred. First of all, we need to understand that and be reminded that Mordecai is a Jew. They don't know it yet. He's been promoted to sitting at the king's gate. And what does that mean? Well, that's influential. That's where the movers and shakers were. To be inside the building, that's what it meant. To be of the inner circle. But with this, he began to find out, I believe, with the position and promotion came great responsibility. Spiritual warfare always seems to be a prerequisite, doesn't it? To spiritual purpose. When God has something for us, we better watch out because he's going to be exercising our spiritual muscles, our muscles of faith and endurance and trust and stick to it in this. All of these things and more, 
He's going to be exercising those through spiritual warfare and other spiritual things that come about to bring about the spiritual purpose that he wants. God wants us to know before he gives us spiritual responsibility that he can trust us to use the wisdom and the self-restraint to use the spiritual weapons of warfare when the going gets tough and not just throw in the towel as we so often do. He doesn't want the spiritual to be thrown to the side and the natural to take over. What do I mean by that? It's easy when, when challenges come our way to start relying on what we know to do in the natural realm. And what happens so often? We forget about the spiritual. We start relying on the natural and our senses and we begin to fret. We begin to panic. We begin to fear. We begin to... Uh, uh, to become depressed and discouraged. And, and a lot of times we just want to quit and give up. Well, God is wanting us to learn to trust in him, just like he did then. There was a plot to kill the king. So Mordecai became aware of it. What did he do? He reported it. He reported it to the queen who in turn reported it to the king. And they found out that uh, this, these culprits, uh, these guards of the threshold, the, uh, these people that were uh, planning this evil plot, it was for real. And so he had them hanged. So now we see that he's got another promotion, right? He's a second in line. He's been moved up. No, Haman has. Now, I, you know, I don't know why this happens. This was a little uncommon. Uh, it seems odd. History has records where acts of loyalty were rewarded immediately and generously by the Persian kings. We don't know why he went beyond Mordecai. Didn't, didn't even recognize him, it says. And, and then Haman was elected uh, or, or uh, put in charge. But one principle we do know, another principle from this is that we can learn is, is life fair? We'll soon find out that life seems to be unfair. You know, take for instance, when you're working at a job, you put in all these extra hours. You've got it down. You've laid it out. You put it on the board. It's, uh, the presentation is great. They accept it. And guess what? You don't get the promotion. Now, you came up with the big ideas. You covered the boss's back even when no one else would. You worked the long hours. Why don't you get the promotion. Well, we don't know what all's going on behind the scene, but we also know that life seems unfair to us, doesn't it, at times? And it will always be that way, as long as we live in a fallen world. For you see, when righteousness rules, as someone said, justice reigns. But when evil lurks in a heart, 
injustice follows. And that's so true. Hearts are evil. And that's exactly the setting here with Haman and uh, his advancement. But one thing for sure that we know of, theologically speaking, we know that even though life may seem unfair, God is always at work, and he's at work behind the scenes. We may not know exactly what is about to occur. We may not know why this is occurring to us, but we are to learn from this and to just trust God, even when it seems unfair. God knows how to checkmate, as somebody said, any power of darkness. He does that well. Well, let's look at the uh, from Haman. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamathadath, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Bowing down to Haman. This was more than just some kind of palace curtsy or uh, typical protocol, if you will. Whenever the two Hebrew words are put together, bowing and paying homage, they are combined together referring to worshiping and reverencing God in the Old Testament. So you can almost feel the tension rising here. And Mordecai is risking everything. We've got to remember this. He may be somewhat Persianized, you know, for remaining there and living there, but we see that tension is rising and he's risking everything here, not only for himself, but the queen eventually because the word would come out. Now, there's different views offered by scholars as to why Mordecai refused to bow, and I, you know, I'll share with, thee, uh, share with these from uh, other authors, but one has said that uh, maybe he was arrogant and upset and he, doesn't, he wasn't promoted instead of Haman. Mm. He's not interested in court politics. Well, that could be some truth. He doesn't like Haman. Uh, probably some truth there. He enjoys irritating Haman. Well, who wouldn't, you know? <laughs> uh, but above all, all of these may have some truth or some of them may have some truth to them, but I think the most important reason Mordecai didn't bow is found in the fourth verse. He was a Jew. And it seems Mordecai isn't reacting against Persian protocol. He's reacting against the fact that Haman wants people to basically bow down to him, worship him, the ground that he walks on. And Mordecai's been taught not to do that. So the people that are around him, 
that work with him. They notice that he's not doing this, and they tell him to, and he doesn't obey, so they go to Haman, and they tell him. And Mordecai, you know, he bent just so far, but he wouldn't bow. And so God works in mysterious ways. God seemed to blind Haman's eyes as to Esther and the kinship there for some reason. He's not going after that. Boy, if he, if he had recognized that Esther was a Jew at this time, I mean, there, there would really have been some heat. He'd probably tried to assassinate her before uh, he even passed his decree. But he, you know, he missed it, and the reason they missed it or seemed to miss it is because God protected her. God wanted him to do, act in that way. So, uh, you know, Mordecai was made aware of something that many of us today also find out. Having everything that you think that you need or that you'd like to have may mean that you're not satisfied within when you have it. And that's the case with most of us, isn't it? I mean, you know, you can buy more and more and more and you get more and more and more. You can get promotions. You can move up the ladder. You can travel. You can do, you know, you can go where you want to and you can do what you want to. And, but you, you're always seeking for more. You're always seeking for that more. And so becoming uh, Persianized meant that uh, he had been running from God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But even though he had become Persianized, uh, he knew that there was a greater kingdom than that of Persia. And he wouldn't bow to Haman. And so uh, what we see here is what we are taught in the New Testament. Is that where God uses things to bring us to him? He did it with the Israelites of old, didn't he? And so uh, this is what he's doing. He's, he's bringing, um, you know, Mordecai to his knees and to trust God and, and to, uh, to worship God. And he wants the Israelites to do that also. Maybe you've been that, uh, you know, sought that true happiness through other things and you've realized the same thing, that the world doesn't have what you need. It's the Lord. And so for the first time, Mordecai acknowledged this fact and saw his identity for what it really was. And he also knew to reverence anyone other than God was to break God's law. So J. Vernon McGee wrote, Hooray for Mordecai! For the first time he's taking a stand for God. And it will cost him potentially everything. You know what? Isn't that what the, uh, the scriptures tell us? that we are to, you know, seek the Lord above everything else and we're to take up our cross daily and follow him. And we're to be willing to sacrifice what God wants us to sacrifice for his kingdom's sake, if necessary. So Mordecai, you know, he demonstrated his loyalty and his uh, commitment in the face of persecution and Haman's servants reported to him, and Haman didn't take it kindly, and so he, you know, uh, uh, he went after Mordecai. And this was his response, Haman's response, in, in verses 5 through 6, when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman uh, was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him, who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who
who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. This was an opportunity for him to get revenge. And so it was an excuse to settle the family feud, if you will. Haman seeks counsel, it says, from his gods in uh, Esther 3.7 in the first month, which was the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus. Her, that is the lot, was cast before Haman uh, from day to day, from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adur. This lot was cast to discover the best date for exterminating the Jewish people. And we find out from 13 the date was decided. And letters uh, went out, were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, on one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adur, and to seize their possessions as plunder. According to Persian custom, he gets the voodoo doctors to come over, cast purr. Uh, these are the uh, stones, and to find out when, uh, what would be the best time to annihilate the Jews. And so hatred with Haman has now grown to murder in his mind. And uh, it was around the day of Passover. And this was so very important because Passover meant what to the Jews? Deliverance, didn't it? And so God was bringing them back to, uh, for them to recognize that, hey, I took care of you when you were in Egypt. Did I not? And now I'll do the same thing. The Jews were about to learn a very important lesson that the God that was a God of the Jews of old is the same God that is a God of the Jews of now and will be of the future. So Haman, you know, he should have read some of God's writings because Solomon had written uh, this in Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And then he would realize, hey, man, this is from the Lord, and I better find out why it's happening. And he's going to uh, bring about a miracle on this particular day, using it to remind the Jews of his power and his presence. So he wants to draw the hearts of the people back to him. And the Jews don't know everything yet. They don't know all that's happening and what God is up to. But God has a plan that will override the evil plan of Haman. And then Haman and his evil plan is uh, depicted more clearly in the following verses. It says, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the province of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people. You notice he didn't say Jews. He just said another people, didn't he? And... They do not observe the king's laws, so it is not the king's interest to let them remain. Haman seems, seems to know the, the king well, and he knows what buttons to push to get things done. Because you remember what has just happened to the king. Vasti's rebellion, two humiliating uh, defeats, military defeats, and attempted assassination. I mean, that's a lot. And so, in turn, he's just pushing those uh, buttons of vulnerability uh, upon the king. And uh, the, the slightest hint of rebellion uh, would trigger the king to act immediately, and he knew this. Uh, now, 
he even sweetens the pot even more in Esther 3.9. If it is pleasing to the king, let, uh, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasures. That's a lot of silver, a lot of money. Now, where would he get it? Well, either he had a lot of money put away, or maybe along with the money that he had, he was betting on the money that he would get from the Jewish possessions. And so, isn't that what happened during the war, Third Reich? I mean, you know, they became wealthy in that way. They stripped the Jews of their assets and possessions. So how does the king respond to Haman's offer? In verse 10, the king said, Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, and the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. I'll get that in a minute. And the king said to Haman, The silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. In other words, the king's response, you say he didn't take the silver. Well, he did, you know, expect it later on. We'll see. Um, but uh, we see that's just a, a type of, as some scholars say, a type of posturing that uh, was done in the Middle East. The deal has been completed. The Jews are to die on this day. There's no loopholes in the edict. The king makes himself clear as to how he feels about it. And so the king has Haman go ahead with his plan. Now, the entire kingdom is told to get ready for this big day. This probably uh, pleased uh, Haman even more so because as he began to think about it, he'd like to wipe them all out, but this gave him a little bit of time to, for them to really be uh, persecuted, to think about it within their minds and their lives. Here were the Jews. They, you know, uh, the Jewish people, they were going to be marginalized. They were going to be treated with suspicion. The friendships were going to end. Jewish businesses would fold and God's people would be avoided. They would be feared. They would be hated. They would be envied. They would be killed. And he enjoyed the thought of getting rid of them, but along with that, he probably thought, hey man, you know, the misery that they're going to have to live in this year, that's not bad either. And so he wanted to torture them. This sounds like what happened to the Jews during the, uh, the war with Germany. You know, uh, uh, was this not what happened when, uh, uh, you know, the, the riots broke out and became known as the Crystal Night? And the reason was because of the shattering of the windows of the Jewish shops, stores, and homes, and the tension had been mounting so, and whispers throughout Germany were that the Jews were different. They said they were, um, uh, the Jews do not belong to the same species, but only uh, imitate humans. They are as far removed from us as animals are from humans. And it's said that the, uh, the troops, as they marched down the streets, uh, uh, these were the uh, unthinkable, some of the unthinkable lyrics that they, uh, uh, they voiced. Sharpen the long knives on the pavement. Sink the knives into the Jewish flesh and bone. Let the blood flow freely. This is the kind of evil. It didn't originate with Harmon, or Haman, excuse me, the, uh, nor the king of Persia. It originated in the heart of the prince of darkness who rebelled against God. Satan is the ultimate Jew hater. And so Haman and Hitler will 
you know, they'll come and go. But we know that Satan will continue as long as he's allowed to here on earth to try and stop God's covenant people from progressing. So man may move the chess pieces of, of life on their own, but in the end, they'll find out that their movements have ultimately accomplished God's will. And this is the same way here. I want to close with this. Erwin Lutzer has a neat little book. It's, it's not very big. It's a little book. It's called Hitler's Cross. And in it, he talks about a pa pastor by the name of uh, Dr. Nimola. He bravely preached, he says, these words to his congregation during the days of the Third Reich. We have no more thought of using our own powers to escape the authorities than the apostles of old. No more are we ready to keep silent as man's request when God commands us to speak. For it is and must remain the case that we must obey God rather than man. Well, you know what happened. Within a few days, he was arrested and imprisoned. He was held for six, seven months in solitary, and his trial was on February 1938, and he was accused of speaking against the Third Reich. With malicious and provocative criticism, they said, he had violated the law and was charged of abuse of the pulpit. Now, when he was brought before the courtroom, he had to travel down the long tunnel that led to the courtroom. And there was a soldier beside him, but he was very depressed at the time, very discouraged because the parishioners who had been walking with him, supposedly, never came to see him. No family, no friends. He said, where was his church as he was walking down through there? That's what he was thinking to himself. That said at one time that they would stand with him. He had not heard anything from them. And as discouragement and distraught began to overtake him, he heard a voice echoing off the walls. Barely. Quietly. It was a soft voice. He couldn't understand it at first, and then he listened, he strained to listen. And he heard it coming from the soldier of all people. He strained to hear it very closely. And these were the words that were echoing. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. Proverbs 18.10 That's when his fear, he said, vanished. A new sense of hope and trust took hold of him. Nemoer would be condemned and sentenced to a concentration camp for seven years. But he, he survived. And he was able to tell the story. You know, as the Israelites are about to walk through this dark tunnel in Esther. 
this tunnel of annihilation, it seems, they too would do well to go to Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. And I think we would too. Leaves me with this. Keep going back to God's word and the promises that he gives. When you're discouraged, when you're being mistreated, when you're going down that dark tunnel, when everyone else seems unjust, remember, run to God because God isn't unjust. You know, our commitment to the Lord doesn't go unnoticed. Some will admire it, but some will hate it. When no one else seems to care and notice, God does. When everyone else seems to give up, God doesn't. When no one seems to to be near you, God is. When in you know, when when God seems to be distant even. And no one seems to be standing with you. He is there and he's present. Even when God seems to be removed, he remains sovereign and faithful. He's never removed. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I just want to thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. I want to thank you for you always being there, you being a sovereign God, you never forsaking us. God, I I want to thank you that you're always fair, you're always just. You notice where we are, you know right where we are because you're there with us. You never leave us. Even though at times you seem to be silent, you're at work. We may not understand it, we may not see it. You're doing a mighty work. God, help us to look through the lens, the spiritual lens, and help us to focus in by faith on you. And Lord, help us to run to you, as a proverb says, to trust in you. Not so much with our surroundings, but you. Thank you, God, for your love and grace. Thank you for always being there. Thank you that you have promised that you'll never forsake us. When all else may fail us, you never do. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name.